might as well just get started here. Um, we'll go through some club stuff and then I'll uh, hand it over to you. Um, usually people put some questions and stuff in the chat as we go. So whatever you feel like doing, if you feel like answering them during the presentation or just waiting until after, whatever's up, whatever's most comfortable for you. Sounds um, good. Sweet. Oh, Mike is here. How's it going, Mike? I don't know if you can hear me. That's all right. Well, welcome to the April 2023 meeting. Um, feels crazy that we're already past quarter one for 2023. Um, this year's just flying by with I mean, everything at work and personal. And I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So um, we had thunder snow here in Wisconsin last night. So that was really fun. So go figure, snowing and thunder and lightning. That was, of course, spring in Wisconsin. Um, if you guys want any special guests that you know of in the brewing industry that you're interested in possibly seeing on here, uh, collaborating with the clubs, definitely let us know. Um, we're not afraid to reach out and just say, just get someone involved in it. So um, absolutely let us know what you want to see with this club, whether that be a person or an activity or, I mean, shoot, even a group buy, like the tilt group buy that we're doing right now. Um, if anyone's interested in a tilt hydrometer, the floating hydrometers that you can put in your fermenter and then read um, on your phone, kind of track fermentation, temperature, all that stuff. Uh, we have a pretty awesome group buy going on right now with the people at Tilt. Uh, the regular units, we're, we're getting a 40% discount on them and the Tilt Pros, we're getting a 33% discount. So I haven't seen anything nearly that low on those units um, out in the wild. So awesome chance to jump in and get some cool, cool gear. Uh, more information on that, shoot me a message, let me know. Uh, we can chat and I can get you in touch with Trevor, who's kind of heading that up. Um, kind of on the same vein, one of the newer things that we introduced is the partnership with Master Homebrewers Program. So I'm, I've, I'm a part of that. Um, I've been competing for a little over a year now in homebrewing. And this is just another way to push competing and homebrewing and getting better and trying new things. So uh, this is a Learned Brewer exclusive. So if you're one of our paid members, you get a discount to sign up. Uh, for the Master Homebrewers program, which of course gets you into that and gets you all the amenities with that too. So we got a cool program going on with them. Uh, experiment series. Uh, we just had an awesome experiment about Pilsner Munich malt, trying to mix those to mimic Vienna malt, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but if you guys are interested in doing a brew club experiment to get on the Brewlosophy website, hit us up. Um, we're still doing the Delta Firm Tank giveaway for the end of the year for the most voted on um experiment so that's going to be a lot of fun we just sent out three pouches of lo9 uh que bueno from eben he sent those over to us from imperial and uh all three recipients of those are going to be doing an experiment with that too so um you guys want some lalaman yeast you got an idea for for an experiment and you want some yeast to go with it let me know uh i'll see what i can do see if i can get you some pat uh sachets of that sent on over Next month, uh, with April and May right in a row, we're going to have a double header Imperial yeast meeting. So we got Mr. Alex with us today, and we're going to have Casey from Imperial. Um, I know Casey's been on the Brewlosophy podcast before, and I know Marshall chats about her every now and then. So we're going to have her on um, with one of her other uh, colleagues to to kind of just chat about yeast and her association with Brewlosophy and Imperial and all good stuff. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, figured. Uh, 
we're like really getting the nitty gritty of yeast and, and our favorite microorganism with that. Um, average brews today, of course, is April 1st. So it's the first day of Q2, um, which usually coincides with the, the real uh, average brew release for the survey. Um, Alex, of course, had a release, uh, other Alex, sorry, sorry, Imperial Alex, um, had to release his fun uh, little survey results for the Purple Pilsner. If you haven't seen that, um, go check it out because it's pretty hilarious. A little callback to the New Zealand Pilsner episode of, of Rulosophy. Um, but tomorrow I'll launch the real survey. So we'll get some leaves in your hands. We'll get a recipe put together for Belgian Cezanne. Um, that's going to be a, a table Cezanne we're going for right now. And I think it'll be really cool. Um, learner brewers have had access to that for about a week now, a little over. Um, so they've got first dibs on, on yeast and getting involved in, in kind of shaping the, the beginnings of that survey. So if you're interested in becoming a learner brewer, we got a ton of cool stuff that we're doing with that. Um, even, I mean, we're just, we're growing that every single day. So definitely reach out, um, let us know if you're interested and we can, uh, we'll give you, give you some info on that. Um, and one of those cool things is we're, we're trying to do more merch. So we're doing some average brew glassware. We got our order in. I think I received the test glass this week to kind of approve the artwork. Um, and we'll go from there. We'll get an order to my house, uh, packed up, shipped out to anyone who wants those. And of course, Learner Brewers will get the uh, first dibs on those and they'll only be paying shipping for those, uh, which is actually pretty reasonable. We did a lot of research trying to get as best shipping rates as we can. So we're going to get those glasses to our learned brewers for a little under five bucks, which would be great. So that is all I have. Uh, Alex, floor is yours. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself, your brewing, uh, your association with Imperial and kind of the topics we're going to go over today. Yeah, sure. So Obviously, yeah, my name's Alex. I, I'm part of our technical team at Imperial. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, I'll give you a little background. I don't really want this to be a chill about Imperial, though. I'd rather just talk about yeast. Uh, we're located in, in Portland, Oregon is where we're based. We have a location in Philadelphia as well that we opened a couple of years ago. Uh, for us, since we deal with commercial brewers a lot, it's really important to have locations on both sides of the country because we ship liquid yeast overnight, and it's very heavy. Um, so anyways, we're bi-coastal. Um, like I said, I'm part of the technical team. I mostly work with our research and development team, helping them with like a lot of the technical research, kind of if you think about like almost uh, doing like reviews of subjects before we really get into them and stuff and, and figuring out what the background knowledge is. And then doing my best to convey that as well to all of our customers, home brewers and, and professional brewers um, in a way that's digestible because not everybody uh, gets paid to read scientific papers like I do. And so I figure if I can um, digest some of that and make it a little bit more accessible, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty cool aspect of my job. So anyway, that's what I do for the most part. Um, as far as what we were going to talk about today, um, Haven, I know we had kind of talked about uh, hitting on some hybrid yeast and um, talking about some other stuff, but I really, I mean, like we were talking about as well, I want to leave this as open as possible. Um, so we can start out by by talking about hybrid yeast. Um, I find that 
you know, instead of a presentation, it's I like to go through some stuff and then just have people interrupt me where where they need or fire questions as they come up. Um, but at the same time, I don't think we're really I'm, I'm not feeling like we need to be limited to any particular topic at all. I think hybrids is something that's uh, interesting, but maybe like we were talking about Haven last time, it doesn't have legs for a, a presentation that people aren't all that into. So I just want to make sure that y'all are into it if we're going to talk about it. Yeah, you bet. And I think um, a really recent topic that'd be interesting to hear about from your side of things is the the letting go of that organic label that you guys had as well. I think that'll yeah. be kind of tie that in with the, the hybridization and kind of what that means for your Imperialis project. Totally. Yeah, that's uh, happy to talk about whatever. So I guess, do you want to just, uh, I can start by kind of talking about what we do with hybrid yeast and kind of what hybrid is for us. Go for it. Yeah. And everyone, if you guys want to, if you have questions throughout the, throughout the time Alex is talking, just shoot them in the chat or interrupt them. Like you said, we'll just, we'll yeah. keep it nice and uh, nice and loose and just kind of have a conversation. Yeah. So I'll just kind of jump into it and I'll apologize at the start. I'm not really sure kind of what the the base knowledge level is in terms of, of yeast and yeast physiology and um, particularly in regards to hybrids. So I'm going to cover some background that I, I hope won't bore you too much. And then we'll, if you want to get into it more, just, just let me know. But basically, um, like Kevin had, had alluded to, we started as an organic company. We've recently dropped that organic certification, but the fact that we started as an organic company does play a significant role in why hybrids are something that we've kind of built a program looking into. Um, because of that certification, we have been um, and still are limited in terms of what we can do with genetic engineering or GMO technology. Um, and that is really the, I mean, to be perfectly honest, that is the cutting edge, the leading uh, research that's being done in the world of yeast in terms of coming up with new strains and pushing it forward. Hybridization is, is in the grand scheme of things, uh, also quite recent, but uh, got overshadowed fairly quickly because it's um, a less precise method of, of getting in, moving in the same direction. So anyways, for us, that was what we had it uh, available to us in terms of being able to uh, develop new yeast strains. Because um, there are really kind of only two ways you can expand the, the selection of yeast that people have available to them. And one is um, creating new ones or bioprospecting. And bioprospecting, for anybody who's done that, is really hard. Uh, you can catch things really easily, but it's a... It's a really uh, low percentage chance that you're going to get something that's actually going to hold up well in a in terms of a production brewing strain. So anyways, uh, we can't do the GE stuff, so we started getting into hybridization. So hybridization is basically yeast don't want to mate with each other normally. They just reproduce more of themselves. They just replicate. Um, and hybridization is forcing them through one means or another to actually mate with each other. Um, and so it's just like human beings when you have a kid it's like it's your offspring it's not necessarily half of one parent and half of another parent it's not like a people sometimes get it confused with a blend of yeast uh, where you have two different strains that are blended together this is actually like its own thing it's a stable organism that has its own traits and characteristics and may show some relation to one parent or another maybe one more than the other but it is going to be its own thing and so um 
what we're able to do through that process is kind of look for a yeast that uh, is has traits that are more desirable is essentially what you're looking for. Something that think of it as like a, a palette of colors. You're just looking for more colors uh, to to fit on that palette. And so if you can find a yeast strain that maybe you know, gets you certain characteristics that you got with another strain that wasn't very flocculent, and this one is more flocculent, that's something you can go for. Or you can go for something just new altogether, which um, for us, the first one we put out, I-22 Capri, um, is kind of fits that bill. It it uh, is a pretty good thiol releasing strain for something that is not genetically organized or genetically engineered. Um, but it's not, you know, on the same level as any of the GE strains, to be very frank. Um, but it is pretty good at that, and it's uh, it's kind of been a fun thing to play with and, and get to know a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, I mean, I I could get into specifics more, but I don't want to just start going down rabbit holes unless people have questions. So that's kind of the baseline of what we do. So if yeast don't usually like to to reproduce with each other. I know they're usually asexual. Mm -hmm. How how do you, I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, force that? Yeah, there are a couple ways you can do it, but most of the time it's putting them in an environment that it only, uh, where there's only a, a specific set of nutrients that are available. Um, and it's generally like a stressed environment um, in the grand scheme of things. And uh, it induces the yeast to, yeah, and a lot of Marvin Gaye music. <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah, so you're kind of start, starting to, you're trying to push them to feel like some stress so that they have some sort of uh, evolutionary need to actually replicate or or do the things that it does to uh, be able to replicate. Um, but there are a couple other techniques, but that's kind of how, how we do it, growing under specific conditions in the presence of other yeast, and then they basically, they sporulate. Um, and it's those spores that that are uh, going to allow them to to breed. Interesting. Wow. So how how long did it take to develop something that was actually usable? Is it kind of just a trial and error? It's uh, in the sense that you don't know exactly what you're going to get uh, in terms of flavor production and and fermentation behavior. Um, it is a little bit trial and error. I mean, you. You basically, once this starts and you have you have a whole range of uh, possible strains to try, um, whether you get like a couple successful mating uh, events, you start running these strains and you just see, okay, do they hold up? Basically, you're looking for the basic brewing characteristics of the start. Like, does it actually attenuate the wort? Uh, does it not smell terrible? Um, and then you go from there and see if it's, it's really viable. So that part is a little bit guess and check. Um, the the starting point you can you can test yeast for how well it sporulates basically is a lot of the testing that we do some brewing yeast strains just don't sporulate very well even under these perfect conditions and so they're not good candidates for hybridization uh, other strains do and so we have to we focus on those strains and then we look at characteristics from those strains and kind of think about okay what would we theoretically like to uh, to pass on. But again, kind of going back to that metaphor, it's not like, you know, we can always say like, I'd really like it if my kid was six foot three, 
you know, it's not as simple as just being like, okay, that's the partner that I need to choose for that. There's a, a little bit more randomization to it. So. Wow. What is the uh, end goal of these modifications? Or is it better flocculation or better different temperature ranges that we could ferment at? What are different flavors? What's the end goal? Or what yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So for this first one, really our goal was we were trying to figure out uh, if we could uh, basically swim in the same pool as the the people like Omega and Berkeley yeast who are making these these thialized or these genetically modified strains that release thiols um, and are able to do some other biotransformative activity. We were trying to figure out if, if through this method we could improve that um, in a in a non-genetically engineered strain. Obviously, that's what a lot of professional brewers and home brewers care about right now. And so um, as much as we do like to explore our own projects, we are kind of, uh, you know, we have to pay attention to what people want. So that's what that's what this one was geared towards. But yeah, I think you you kind of hit uh, the nail on the head there with taking a step back and thinking about what the possibilities are in general and what what you'd like to to be able to improve or target or or characteristics that are are really sought after. Um, flocculation is a huge one, and that's one that is kind of this like boring mystery in the brewing world that we understand fairly well, but not completely, and we don't always understand, you know. If it works, it works. And then when it doesn't work, it's often really difficult to figure out why it didn't work. Um, and so, yeah, that's one that a, a lot of people have have talked about. If you could say, I don't know. It, I mean, I, I guess a good example would be like a, a you know, a, a really flocculent coal strain or something like that. So you don't have to deal with like the powderiness that you get so often with those strains or with other German ale strains where they can be like a little bit powdery if you could just say hey you know you're going to run this at a coldish fermentation and it's maybe going to take seven days but once it hits terminal it's clear it's like you don't have to worry about you know serving a hazy colch or something like that so yeah that's um that would be one of the top ones uh i don't know that there's like a triage list that exists of of further things we would we would target um yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think it kind of, it depends a little bit on the balance of what we're interested in and also kind of what the most realistic possibilities of of having success are. Kind of have to, you know, you, can, you can't swing for the fences every time. So you would say you're fairly early on on these modifications and the possibilities are maybe endless eventually or something like that? Yeah, you know, I think it really it always depends on what in what window you're looking at this through, like what time frame, I guess. And that's kind of where I said, you know, it's in in terms of what we've been able to do with brewer's yeast for as long as we've been dealing with it. Uh, intentional hybridization is like really a, a pretty recent thing in the grand scheme of things. But because genetic engineering came on the scene and with the advent of CRISPR became so much like more accessible this kind of just got overshadowed but yeah i think a, as a community as a whole we we understand hybridization pretty well we there's been like a lot of good work going into the methods of hybridization but in terms of like really being able to dial it in it's um i don't think it's anywhere near say where it is for um for like plant hybridization or breeding plants or something like that especially crop plants like it's um for people who are doing that 
using non-genetic modification means, uh, growers are pretty good at that when, when you're talking about the plant world. In the yeast world, it's just a, it's a much newer thing and we, uh, we're still learning a lot, both internally and as a, as a whole. Awesome. <clears throat> yeah, Ricky threw a question in the chat if you want to. Yeah, I was just reading that. Yeah, Ricky, that's a really good question. So um, for those of you who aren't reading the chat, the question is basically about this hybrid strain that we make I-22 Capri. Um, Ricky's asking about the process um, in terms of product testing. So basically, one, if, if I'm understanding right, once we have it, how we decide um, what the practical uses are and, and how do we learn about it? Um, and specifically, how do you figure out what kind of beer it works best in? So, uh, the last part, I can say we really try to not prescribe styles for strains that we have. You know, there are obviously strains where you, you get it and it is just going, it has either a certain lineage where it has historically been used in a certain way and you know it's going to perform well. But in general, we don't like to say this is a hazy IPA yeast as much as like A38 juice is what that is. Um, it's also an English strain and it was, you know, the source for A38 juice, which is, a, for those of you not familiar, is like our hazy IPA strain now. The source is Boddington's yeast, which anybody who's ever had a Boddington's, that's certainly not a, a hazy IPA. Um, so with Capri, it's really the parents for Capri were A43 Loki, which is the Voss Kvike strain, um, and then A38 Juice, which is that London Ale 3 tranche of, of yeast section. Then, like I said, its origin is Boddington's. But Given the characteristics of both of those strains, we had a pretty good idea that, you know, hazy IPAs would be a good candidate for it or juicy IPAs or kind of new world IPAs. Um, and so when it came out, yeah, it, it did work well for that. It's a pretty good strain at, at promoting haze. So for for those uh, people who want to make a hazy IPA, it's not going to they're not going to be working against it. Um, and then it was just, it's a lot of early on, it's a lot of in flask, uh, fermentations where you're just getting an idea of the esters that are produced and getting a, just a baseline of like, okay, what direction can we head with this? What fermentation temperatures does it seem to like and respond to best? And then we go into like, we have a, uh, one barrel kind of tank farm, uh, five fermenters that we can just, uh, divert work to, and we'll run trial fermentations in there with, uh, varying recipes but um often just getting a baseline and then we we have partners in the commercial brewing world who we rely on too once we get something like that we're like hey you want to play around with something and get us your feedback because as much as we like beer you know we're we have a, a really nice one barrel that one barrel like farm that's really good for testing but i guess i should have said this at the beginning most of us are former brewers i didn't say that about myself as uh, in the intro but uh since we're former brewers, we're pretty aware that a one barrel fermentation is not the same as a 10, 20, 40, 200 barrel fermentation. And so instead of just going to market with this stuff and saying, hey, this is what it is, we'll often find people who say, hey, we have a really good idea of these characteristics, but we're still learning. Do you want to try this out? Let's find out what happens in your 40 barrel fermentation or something like that. Um, and then obviously working with homebrewers as well to kind of say, hey, like, does this work at the homebrew level? Um, and and getting feedback there. So we're it's definitely a partnership with with people that we work with. 
are you doing unhopped single malt wort for the the testing internally and then kind of sending it to your commercial partners for actual recipes in that or are you guys doing like a a single hop blonde or something like that yeah no most of it is unhopped wort that's really like we are you know it's kind of interesting different yeast labs are set up to produce wort in different ways um and the way we're set up is really it comes from a definitely like a, a lab informed background which is to say that like our wort is always going to be really sterile um but it maybe is not the the best work for for making a, a beer that you're going to have full control over a lot of uh characteristics of the the work and so yeah it's a pretty baseline thing and then we'll um we have lots of friends nearby in portland hope uh, luckily who are are willing to kind of help us with the next steps so awesome and in terms for with i-22 capri i i know mm -hmm. that's kind of a lot of people stick with the hazy juicier ipas with that have do you know anyone or have you you guys internally done anything different with that have you gone like a i know voss doesn't really fit with that but like a dark mild route or a tropical stout or something something way off the cuff from what it's typically known for no i the, the short answer is just no uh we haven't um you know it's we we really like to experiment as much as we can and there's just like once you get to a level and we do a lot of experimentation in the lab we do a lot of testing in in flasks but like i said there's kind of this we can run hundreds of fermentations in flask and get a really good idea of like the range of of behaviors that you're going to see at different temperatures different work constituents all this stuff but we we're pretty cautious about not taking too much from that and saying okay this is how it's going to behave in a in a brew um we think it gives us a nice baseline but um it, it what I'm getting at here is basically we don't get to a point where we're like, okay, well now we can make a you know a wort that's going to work for a, a tropical stout and let's try that and then we're going to you know divert part of that and use it for something else and um, we're just unfortunately not set up in that way. So okay, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, Will Allwort ask, do you feel hybrid yeasts are superior to genetic GE yeast strains or just different means to an end? Yeah, I don't I don't think there's a superiority. And um I always like to say this too, like, you know, we we started as an organic company, not because of some philosophical stance that we had about organic versus non-organic, but it really was. I mean, we were based in Portland, Oregon, and there are a lot of organic breweries out there um who just have a really hard time getting organic yeast. And for us it was like, well, okay, let's see if we can help people out with that. And then from a process standpoint, it really wasn't, um, it just wasn't too difficult to, to keep it going that way and, and make everything organic. Um, but no, so it's hybridization is what we are doing because it's, it's what we had available to us. Um, to be perfectly honest, the genetic engineering is, this is kind of like using a it's using genetic engineering is using a surgical tool and hybridization is is i don't know using a good hammer it's like it's it's not bad it's just it's less precise and like yeah you can get the job done but it it um you know if i need surgery i'm going to go to someone who has surgical tools um so yeah i mean to be perfectly honest yeah genetic engineering is um much more targeted and and much faster to get the results. It's also significantly more expensive, but 
Yeah. Also, I just want to state for the record that I have no problems with hybrids and GMOs, but IPA beers can go to hell. So you could work <laughs> on other beers, <laughs> beer styles. Totally. I mean, so this is, I, I'm kind of curious, you know, you, you mentioned Tropical Stout for like I-22. I would be interested to see kind of I-22 push back in the direction of of kind of the the Norwegian or Scandinavian farmhouse style beers and see how it performs in in that environment. I don't know anybody who's kind of taken it in that direction. So, I, yeah, I'd be really curious to see, um, especially with Voss being one of the parent strains that that were a part of that. Um, I know Voss is more probably one of the fruitier Kvike strains. Um, so, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'd, like a Lithuanian farmhouse, a raw ale. I'm I'm not sure. I think it'd be yeah. interesting especially with the haze stability that it, that it gives that'd be that'd be cool so there's a question in here about sampling unhopped beer yeah i should have i should have clarified thankfully now there are hot products that we can add uh that give some semblance of of balance in the beer um but yeah i mean really that kind of this is the point that i was getting at earlier is like we're pretty aware of the limitations that our sensory is going to be able to get based on our system setup and that is really why we like work with brewers because we'd rather taste a real beer that's made with this than you know work that wasn't designed to be a beer mixed with some hot products uh to to kind of mimic that you know we can get a baseline from there but until we have it brewed in in a few uh real beers we're we're pretty cautious about making any assumptions about how it's going to taste so yeah, it's uh, in general unhopped wort from that system doesn't taste very good. So, but anybody else have any other questions about hybridization, or y'all want to move on to other subjects? Sorry, you need a refill there. Oh, uh, we'll love all set says is gmo used to fad did you cover that one i didn't i didn't hear oh i didn't even see that one. Oh wow a bunch of these just popped up uh no gmo yeast is is not a fad if i had to guess um you know i think we need as an industry we i think in general this is you know sorry i i'm gonna back up real quick i so i got my background is uh I was a cook for a long time. I got into home brewing just like y'all did that for a long time. I was like, well, I kind of want to do this. So I went back to school and got a degree in fermentation science from Oregon State University. Um, and it's a pretty comprehensive food science and part of that uh, food science degree. And part of that is food law. And you get into, I got really fascinated by that. And um, the way that ties in here is basically our laws dictating how we have to disclose genetic engineered products or genetically modified products, or even define what those things are. Um, I think in general, we just need to do a better job about communicating um, in the brewing industry, what is what something is and what you're, you're actually putting in your body. I don't have a, a stance one way or the other. I just think we need to be better about communicating it. So no, I don't think it's a fad. I do think that there are some potential, there's some potential for some some unfortunately bad press coverage if, I don't know, something happened in the wrong way, which could just be completely, I don't know, 
I just really hope that doesn't happen because it would um, it would really derail a lot of really good work that people are doing, I think. So no, I don't think it's a fad. Um, I'm gonna move on to this next one. If you could wave a magic wand. Oh man, oxygen. So, okay, this one's about it. Basically, if I could, uh, what variables to test if like we could, we could set up some sort of trial amongst all these group members. Yeah. So, um, the effects of oxygen on, on cell growth and, and, uh, flavor production is kind of my, uh, the thing that is is probably always going to be my white whale. Um, it is just such a complex and difficult subject to study because of a, a of a number of factors. But there's a lot of research that was done for a while, and then people just kind of like figured out how the basics work and stopped getting into testing a lot of the variables. Um, partly because they are just so difficult to control, in particular, like getting certain saturation levels of oxygen in wort, um, and then being able to measure how quickly the yeast take that, that oxygen up and, and how efficiently they take that up and how that affects them. Um, that would be something that I think is the root of a lot of home brewing and commercial brewing issues and, and uh, causes of unknown flavor effects for people. And I think if there's a lot we could learn about that process that would really be beneficial for the whole brewing community to kind of understand what they're doing when they're brewing, what the oxygen is is doing for the yeast and their beer and kind of how to, um, I, I kind of like in, in my mind, I think of like, you know, a brewer sitting at this this control panel of like all these, these things, all these dot, knobs and dials that they're always turning. To me, oxygen is like this whole separate control panel that just has been like walled off that we like and a switch has been put on the outside and we basically just have it on or off. And it's like I, I think we could. Yeah, as you can tell, I am obviously excited about this subject. So, yeah, that that would be the one um, I'm curious if any of you all have ever played around with oxygen, actually, like or any experiments. I had some questions about oxygen, but uh, I might go down a rabbit hole and you may go on for five hours. So maybe it's not a good topic, but uh, actually one question I did have on oxygen is that I don't have a cooling wart system. So I'm thinking about just doing a long-term cool down. And I just read about if you oxygenate the wart, it doesn't st last that long or doesn't hold the oxygen you have to put the yeast in within an hour or two. Um, what's your feelings? What's your feedback on that? Yeah, so that's, you. yeah, you bring up a, re a really good point there. So just in general, when you're thinking about this, basically, if you have, let's say your, your work that is just sitting at, at room temperature, it's open to ambient air, and let's pretend that you can leave it there and it's not going to get infected or get anything into it. And you can just leave it there as long as you want. Um, over time, it's going basically the, the partial pressure of all the gases in uh, the air are going to be exerted on there. And you're going to get gas in solution that is going to be roughly equivalent to the balance of gases that are in the air. Um, I hope this isn't getting too much, but this is how I think about it. Uh, in the air, oxygen makes up uh, about 21%. I think it's like 20.95% of the air that we breathe. Um, and 
what that equates to is when that comes into equilibrium with all the, the gas in your wort, you have about eight to nine parts per million of oxygen in your wort. That's like comfortable. That's going to stay there. It's not going to disappear into the air because you've also got the oxygen in the air that's like this equally exerted pressure. So that is at equilibrium and that would be stable. So in the situation that you're talking about, let's say you had your pure oxygen wand that you're running from like an oxygen tank and you oxygenate your wort, you're going to get that above eight to nine parts per million. That's probably going to get like Saturation point, depending on temperature and, and work gravity, is going to be somewhere around 35 to 40 parts per million. You probably won't get that using a, a wand on a homebrew system. You generally will only get that if you're doing that in line and running your work over that. Um, but put your wand in there, you move it around, you're probably going to get to like 18 to 20 parts per million. And that's where it's going to be. But as that work sits, as you're waiting for it to cool down, since there is more oxygen that's been forced into there than there is a partial pressure of oxygen in the ambient environment, it's going to start slowly escaping out and coming to that equilibrium of eight to nine parts per million, which fortunately is enough oxygen for the vast majority of brewing strains. There are some strains that like it uh, like a little bit more oxygen. Um, some Belgian strains that are um, particularly top cropping seem to be more oxygen hungry. And then London AL3 strains like A38 juice are, are pretty oxygen needy as well and typically would would not perform as well if they were then pitched into that wort that has been coming to term temperature. But that's, that's kind of how I would think about oxygen. You're not going to lose all the oxygen in there. You'll have some if it's been air, if it's been oxygenated already, but it probably won't be at a very high level. Um, it'll probably be okay to brew with, especially if you have good, healthy, fresh yeast. Um, but if you have yeast that's maybe like towards the end of its life cycle and isn't doing so hot, that might be a problem then. That might not be enough oxygen to really get that yeast uh, back and in a position where it can make a lot of new yeast cells, I think would be the easiest way to say that. How long does that equalization process happen? Like oh. say Daniel would would oxygenate and then let it just cool to ambient temperatures. Would it equalize before? Is is that just a mute point for him oxygenating before? Uh, I I don't think it I don't think it is. I think it's it's better to oxygenate before because basically it's going to be it's going to take quite a while. Like we're talking probably on the, the scale of days, weeks maybe for an unoxygenated wort to just sit. If you just like aren't agitating it and you just took it and you set it on the counter for it to get eight to nine parts per million of oxygen. I you're talking days. Like it's, it's, if you're not agitating it and getting in there, like there's not a lot of gas exchange that's going on. Um, but if you over-oxygenate your work, say you're, you're knocking it out, it's hot, you just get as much oxygen in there as you can, that's probably going to come to equilibrium and you're just going to be there. So whenever your work is cool, it'll be ready to go, um, if, that, if that makes sense. Hey, Alex. Yeah. Uh, on the, on, in regards to um, oxygenation, um, when I first started brewing, a um, buddy of mine who's much better at this than I am, um, told me I needed I should set up a, a, a oxygen stone and then do it in line. And when I did it with mostly dry yeast, because that's what I was brewing with, um, am still. Um, all I noticed is that it increased the lag time sometimes by a full 24 hours. But everything I every time I I 
read something, talked to someone, they all, everyone said that the oxygenated wort should go faster and, and it might always went slower, which I think is because it spent more time in lag building cell walls. But yeah, I, you know, it's, it's always hard to speculate exactly what is going on, but I, I think you're, you're spot on kind of in, in how you're thinking about this. In that situation, if you have new kind of fresh-ish yeast, let's just call it, since it's dry, let's call it fresh. Um, that's not a dig at dry yeast, I want to be clear. It's just a different metabolic state. Um, but if you're putting healthy yeast into a fermentation and you see a super long lag phase, more often than not, that's the result of over-oxygenation. And just like you're thinking about, it basically just has a ton of oxygen that it's going to take up. It actually is going to take it up really quickly. Like if you're using liquid yeast, I can only speak for liquid yeast. I'm not sure about how long the process is for dry yeast to rehydrate and then be at a point where it cannot take oxygen. Um, but usually if you're putting liquid yeast or rehydrated slurry into there, it's going to uptake all the oxygen in solution within like 90 to 120 minutes. But then it has to start using all that oxygen to build its unsaturated fatty acids and lipids to first kind of maintain and expand its cell wall. Because basically cells start at a size, they grow, and then once they get to a certain point, that's when they break off. And it's, it's like if a cell is this big, the two resultant cells are going to be this. So all it's doing is just the more cell wall it can build, the more new cells it's going to make and the better maintained its individual cell walls are. So if you give it a ton of oxygen, it's going to take it all up. And then, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it just is a longer period of time where it's just kind of like doing this thing before they're like, all right, now let's eat. So with that said, is there a down, like at my scale, is there a downside to over-oxygenating? Because an oxygen stone puts a ton of, especially since I'm using a uh, counterflow chiller, so that the, the flow rate of the wart is very slow. And, and so I, I, even, even when I set that oxygen down to the point where it's just make it's just putting bubbles in it, it's a ton of oxygen. So if I was to do an experiment down the road without, yeah. how do I make sure I don't over oxygenate to, to sabotage the experiment? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think the, the only real answer is, uh, you get a, a, a dissolved oxygen probe. Um, which is unfortunate because those cost about five to 600 bucks. Um, Pass. but that is, yeah, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So we, I actually, actually, can I share my screen? Uh, yeah, you should be able to right in the middle. There. See if I can share. Oh yeah. Okay. Let me see if I can do this. Cause I actually, we have a, a beta version of a, um, calculator for dissolved oxygen in your wort um, that I can show you guys. I I've never actually tried it for homebrew stuff. Um, let me find it here real quick. Yeah. Um, okay, let's try this. Oh. Might be biting off more than I can choose here. Shoot here. <laughs> Sorry. No, no problem. So with that said, how do we at our scale solve your magic wand and do oxygen? 
if we can't tell you what the oxygen level is? So the basically you have three options at, at the homebrew level. You have no oxygenation, zero oxygen in there. That's basically you've boiled your wort, you just run it into your your carboy, your fermenter, or whatever, and you don't aerate, you don't splash, you don't do anything. That's not ideal, but that's that's an option. You can target it, you can hit that variable, that's zero parts per million. You can either splash and aerate. Uh, so are you, submerge, you know, are you submerging the, the, the as you're as transferring, are you like submerging it so that it's filling from the bottom up as opposed to? Or, I'm sorry, can you can you expand on that? So in order to have no splash, you almost need to once the once you get like three inches oh, of yeah. put the hose inside the wart so it feels like almost like almost like you're filling a bottle. Yep. Yeah. So that you would do that. And that's basically like the only reason I bring that up is not to try it, but that would just be like a variable. You can get to that variable. You either fill from the bottom of your fermenter, you have like little agitation as possible, just like letting it rise up almost. Or you have a conical fermenter, you're you're filling from the bottom already or something. You then have the the method uh, kind of like Daniel was talking about, where basically like you would intentionally just like oxygenate the heck out of it um, or over oxygenate it and then just let it sit for a long enough period of time where you can say, OK, I'm pretty sure that this is going to have kind of that amount of oxygen in there that's at equilibrium with with ambient air. So like eight to nine parts per million. So you've got, let's say, zero, nine parts per million or the one where you basically just stick that wand in there, running that O2 like really pretty, I mean, a liter per minute is significant for the amount of work we're talking about. You run that for like five, 10 minutes, and you're probably going to be at 25, 27 parts per million. And so you've kind of got like high oxygenation, middle oxygenation, and no oxygenation. But to answer your question, that's kind of the control you have, unless you are able to calculate the flow rate of your oxygen and the flow rate of your work, which is what I was going to show in this calculator if I can, um, and run all these calculations for the density of the work, the um, temperature of the work, bunch of physics stuff, and then say, okay, now it has this parts per million of oxygen. Do you have that calculator? Because I know the temperature. I I can tell I, I can I can tell you the flow rate because it takes 20 minutes to move five gallons. So I can I, I can I can time I can time it. I can set how long I want the oxygen to run into it, but I can't. Let me if the, if the the dial is just it's like it's on a little, it's on a lot. There's not much. Am I presenting anything to y'all? Can you see anything right yes. now? We see. Yes. Okay. Let me see how. Are you seeing like is it a spreadsheet? Yeah. Okay. okay I'm gonna. I'm just gonna move over to that because. Anyways, so this is, like I said, this is a, a beta version, but basically you can see here, can you see this when I move? Nope. Yes. Okay, so we've got your knockout volume and your knockout time, which these just go together to basically figure out the flow rate coming out of your fermenter. So um, let's say, um, I think Haven, you said you had a, a 10 gallon, so we'll say like a, you know, a 0.33 barrels. Um, Let's see, how, Haven, how long does it take you to knock out? Get it down to pitching time? Yeah. Or I guess the, the actual period of time, or do you have a, a chiller that you're running it through? I, I do, yeah. I run it with an immersion chiller. So, I mean, knockout is a click of a button. Down to chilling time, 10 minutes. Okay. Down to so pitching. Alex, Alex, I'm using a counterflow if you want to use that, and I know my numbers. 
Uh, sure. Yeah, let's do that. It's it's five uh, counts, and it's about twenty minutes to knock out, and that goes straight to the. Um, it's six gallon transfer, I should say. I'm gonna hope my hope my math holds up here. All right, sorry. How how long is your your knockout time? Twenty minutes. So it's twenty minutes. I can already tell you, you are definitely over oxygenating your work. It doesn't really matter what flow rate you're running at. That is just like, uh, that's so much contact time with the oxygen stone. This is kind of the great thing about using them at the homebrew level. What's your what's like a typical starting gravity? Uh, ten forty eight, ten fifty two. Okay, so, so we'll say, yeah, like, let's say 13 Play-Doh. Um, transfer, yeah. transfer temperature is Fahrenheit 60, well, it's, it's 20 C, so that's Perfect. 68. Yeah, 68. Um, so if you, do you know the flow rate you're running your, your oxygen at? As low as possible when I do it. And what I've done more recently is I'll just do it for like five minutes of the transfer. I won't do it for the uh -huh. entire do you have a, a flow meter on there that says liters per minute that it's flowing at? No, no. I just look at the bubbles. If it's if it's gotcha. mostly if it's mostly bubbles, then it's too much. And if it's just a light layer of bubbles on top, then I feel like that's kind of right. <laughs> sure. So this is basically what you can see from here is unless you know your so this is saying if your target DO level was 20 parts per million, you'd want to run this at 0 0.1 to 0 0.2 liters per minute, which if you've ever Ran that before, it's very little oxygen, um, even if you're just knocking out for five minutes. Is this making sense to everybody too? Is, is this clear kind of what what variables is taking into account here? I know this is a bit of a rabbit hole. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I, okay. I guess, I guess the, the, the question is, if I just ran it for like one minute, five minutes, would I be able to dial that in that way and using your calculator to say, okay, well, I'm not going to run it the whole time, but I'm going to run it hot for a few minutes, for, for like one minute or two minutes. Until until you can quantify the flow rate that you're flowing your oxygen at, there wouldn't be a way to uh, to quantify it now. So those things it depends if you um, they're not that expensive. I think you can find them for like fifty bucks. That it depends on your your oxygen tank, but uh, you can get a flow meter. They're called rotometers sometimes. I mean, you can get them for different levels, but you can get one that's like uh, zero to one liters per minute, and it will you'll be able to dial that in within there. But I want to be very clear too. Um, I've never tested this. We, we've tested this in, in production settings and it's it's fairly accurate. I've never tested this calculator at a homebrew level. And it's kind of one of those things where it's like, when you get to the, the edges of its, um, I don't know, the area in which it's supposed to work, I, I start to have questions about how its accuracy. I'm wondering if this would be getting too low um, and if and it's making too many assumptions just um, based on the, the math that's in there. Um, anyways, I'm going to stop sharing so this. Though. Testing a variable would would over oxygenating and then splashing be two variables that you can easily say this is too much and this is splashing and and see what the impact is. I think you could you could have pretty with pretty good um, confidence you could say I'm in like the 25 to 30 parts per million at that over oxygenation and I'm in the the eight to 10 parts per million in the splashing range if you wanted to test those variables. I think, yeah, with pretty good confidence, you could you could do that. But it'd really be the type of thing, it'd be like, I'd find a brewery in your area who seemed nice and just be like, hey, do you guys have a, like a dissolved oxygen probe that I could do for this test I'm running? And I don't know, see if, see if that'll help you. So I would just take them a sample. 
No, so you wouldn't be, that's the problem is you need the probe there because the oxygen will come out of solution so quickly. Um, yeah, I it's, I, this is, I, I, there was, <laughs> there was a reason I, I said like, this is, this is why this is my white whale. I'm pretty sure this will just forever be a thing is it is really difficult to test this stuff. I mean, it is oxygen and solution is fleeting and um, it's difficult to measure. Anyways, I, there are some more questions here that I want to get to. Um, I know we kind of just went down a, a bit of a rabbit hole there. Um, so Ben mentioned, how do you select the initial parent strains? At what point do you try and swap out different parents to achieve? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, a lot of, uh, like I mentioned, the selection for parent strains has to do with, first of all, a, a strain's physiological ability or like, propensity for being good at hybridization, which basically is sporulation. Um, and so we test we've ran tests on all of our strains for that. So we kind of have an idea of if they can or if they can't. Um, and then uh, once we once we get a hybrid, uh, swapping out parents is difficult. It's kind of like if you find two that mate well together and produce an offspring that is stable and a, a, a quality like um, contender for brewing, uh, that's a positive step, but it's a, a very big process to start over with one of those strains and a different strains. It, success with the, those two strains does not mean you're going to have success with two other similar strains. So it's, this is kind of work going back to really, um, I think hybridization is a really cool tool. And personally, like I, I love a lot of the, um, Trying to think of the right way to say this, kind of the the societal and cultural connections that yeast has, and and kind of, I mean, really looking at kind of the, a lot of the what we're learning about um, Kovike yeast, and recently, I think it's really brought it to the the forefront how um, important yeast has been to a lot of cultures, and I think that for me, hybridization is is staying a little bit more in line with that. It's certainly pushing what we've been able to do in terms of breeding a lot, like kind of, again, analogous to what we've done with, with crops and stuff. Um, so I, um, anyways, uh, I, I think it's cool because of that, but it's not as precise as, as genetic engineering, genetic engineering. You're really going in there with a, a microscopic scalpel and, and taking out things you don't want and putting in things that you do. So in that case with two parent strains and kind of sticking with the heritage of different strains um you mentioned kvike with the the i don't i don't want to say trend that's the wrong word but um this popularity of kvike and the popularity or rising popularity of warm fermented lagers is that something you're looking at into trying to kind of kind of breed those two getting the best of both worlds getting that crisp clean lager with a, a kvike so those people that don't have fermentation fermentation temp control can kind of utilize that yeah i think you know it's it is undeniable the potential of kvike <laughs> is um pretty huge um i think we we definitely we're not working on a a warm lager per se but what you're talking about is, yeah, it's it's really what I was getting at with like the, you know, it'd be great to control flocculation. It'd be great to be able to say, hey, everyone, can, you can make a lager. 
like it doesn't matter like whatever your system is you can make a logger or you can make something you know really clean and not put a label on it that you know or whatever but yeah it's uh that is an area where we're focusing where we're looking at what we've seen is these um the hybrids of of these uh kvike strains uh don't always hold all the same characteristics that their parents did um so it's not as they really, I, they're, it's, a, it's an impressive group of, of microorganisms, uh, to be perfectly frank. Like when you just look at, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it really is, it's like, a, it's like having a wild dog or a wolf or something and, and breeding it with a, a domesticated dog. And it's, the change is just so significant. Like it's, it's no longer a wolf. It's no longer wild or, or its own thing. It's, it's very different. So anyways, it doesn't always keep those those characteristics and the temperature tolerance. We've seen a lot of higher alcohol production and hybrids made from um, these these Kvike strains when they're fermented at warmer temperatures, which is typical for most brewing yeast. Interesting. Awesome. Um, Will had a question, just what is my favorite yeast strain? Uh, I have two. Uh, GO2 Kaiser, which is uh, most people think of as an alt strain. Uh, I believe it's the the source for it is um oh it's a it's an alt beer i always forget the name of it um anyways it's a really it's kind of my desert island strain it's actually a great strain for making uh ipas as well it has a really good esterification ability um it seems odd that it would work so well with hops but it's been pretty fantastic to run some trials with uh i ran some trials with it and phantasm if any of y'all have heard of phantasm it's like a, a grape derived powder that is supposedly packed with bound thiols um anyways in some testing uh go2 fermented incredibly with that and released some amazing aromas um so that's probably one of them and then also uh we have one that unfortunately y'all will probably never see uh but it's it's called b35 agrarian um it is the alternate dupont strains so there are kind of two dupont lineages out there and the b66 filibuster is the one that we have on the market that is the dupont strain um and it's notorious for kind of stalling uh midway through like a lot of or like some saison yeast do b35 agrarian tends to not do that and i just um i'm saison saison forever for me so um that's yeah those are my two strains um Mike had a question about biotransformation. Yeah. So I know biotransformation is a huge thing up here in the Northeast. Do you test that in the lab or hand it off to brewing carters? Yeah. So biotransformation is, is this a generally interesting, is biotransformation something y'all are generally interested in? Because this is another deep hole if we get into it. I I think it's a kind of you believe in it or you don't. And I don't think we've had any strong discussions on it, but uh yeah, I mean, what are your your thoughts from a technical view on that? So, I mean, the science is the science is actually pretty well. The foundations of the science are, is pretty well understood and established. And I would say, yes, it is definitely real. Um, there are kind of two main areas when you talk about bio. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, God, I should have had. I maybe I should have got that founders. Um, <laughs> So biotransformation in general, we should be clear, is just the process of basically yeast doing metabolic activity. It's a it's a term that we all kind of know what it 
refers to now, but it's just a, pardon my language, it's just a fucking bad term. Like it's um, so broad. Yeah, it's so broad. Um, I'm sorry, I realized there, some of you might have kids in the background. I shouldn't, maybe I'll watch my language. Um, so basically, there are two main camps of biotransformation that we're thinking about. One is um, there thiols and beta lyase, which beta lyase is an enzyme that releases these thiols. This is kind of the one that is um, in most discussion. And then the, the other ones has to do with hop terpenes and uh, beta glucosidase or glucosidase. Um, and this is releasing um, flavors and aromas from it's, let's be clear, let's just be technical about this. It is releasing aromatic compounds from hops that have previously been bound, so they were not aromatic. The beta-glucosidase um, is releasing things that are more floral, uh, maybe a little bit like tiny lemon-limey stuff, but we're talking like floral end of the spectrum. Thiols are, um, a thiol is just a, a compound that is aromatic that has a sulfur in it basically somewhere. They can be really stinky and not good, but what people think about now with biotransformation is these really incredible tropical fruit, um, current guava, grapefruit. These are all thiols that are released and they also exist in a form where they are bound and non-aromatic. And then when they get released, basically this beta lyase comes in and clips the thing that they're released to or they're attached to and releases them, um, they have an incredibly low aromatic threshold. So we're talking like parts per trillion. Like evolutionarily, we were actually, we're very sensitive to sulfur compounds because things that are toxic to us a lot of times contain sulfur. Um, and so we just developed an ability, we can sense sulfur at the lowest threshold of almost any compound that exists in on earth. Um, and so we're really sensitive to these compounds. So even a very inefficient release of these by yeast, which is how they get released, this is the biotransformation part, even a very small release can really give a, an intense aromatic um, impact to, to your beer. Um, and so biotransformation, yes, it's, it's a really big thing. The problem with all this is it's not as easy as just going in and being like, how much of this compound did this yeast release? Because it's talking about with those thiols, we can smell them at a level where even our most sensitive gas chromatographers or, or um, other type of chromatographs, they can't even pick them up at the level that we can perceive them. So it's incredibly difficult to like, you could take a beer and you can't just like run it through a machine and say, hey, here are all the compounds at these levels that were produced. It's not that simple. Um, and even the closest we can get to it, these tests and the things that they can run to sense these are incredibly expensive and only available a few spots in the world. Um, so it's kind of this really difficult thing to say, hey, this yeast does this, but there are some kind of analogous tests that we can do. So dive back into the science here. Basically, yeast needs nitrogen. Um, these thiol compounds are bound to cysteine is, is an amino acid that they're bound to. Amino acids contain nitrogen. Most brewing yeast, when it's in wort, if it has access to nitrogen, which it does in wort, it won't 
release the enzyme to cleave that bond and get after that cysteine. But if you only present it with this cysteine as its only nitrogen source, so you make a media where it's just a cysteine bound to something, it will have to cleave that to get that nitrogen base. It's a survival technique that you're forcing it into. And then you can see how much it grows in that period. And you can say, okay, the theoretical ability of this yeast strain to express this enzyme is X level or whatever. And you can really only do it comparatively among yeast. There's no objective way of saying like a, a unit of measurement, but you can say this one produced this much more than this one. And you measure, basically measure the optical density of, of how much they grow. And from there, you can infer some information about how well it might be able to, to do this. So that got really deep. But anyways, basically, yes, we we do that in the lab and we have assessed all of our yeast strains to kind of for their, their potential, but we're aware that's not the same as at, in a brewing setting. So that's where we do a lot of work on our side, getting information to build this kind of foundation of, okay, here's what we're, we're expecting to happen. And then, yeah, we'll get in touch with brewing partners and um, try to see if we're right, basically test our hypothesis, so. So the term biotransformation that was really hot two years ago or something, trying to dry hop during active fermentation and stuff like that, is that in a, in, in a roundabout way, kind of a similar thing to what these thiol yeasts are, the GMO yeasts are doing these days? It's kind of a, a similar metabolic process? It's, I would say it's the same family of processes. Yeah. Okay. When you talk about biotransformation, what they're doing targeting now is is the thiols, what they were targeting before. And Berkeley Labs put out a strain that could uh, like release geraniol, which is a compound that is comes from hops. Um, and it was that glycosidically bound one. Um, from all I heard, it kind of smelled like geraniol, uh, which is, you know, <laughs> Another aspect to this where this stuff gets really cool, it gets cool to release this, but flavor is incredibly complicated and there's a balance of, of hundreds of compounds going on. It's not just jacking one through the roof is going to make everything taste great. So mm -hmm. um, yes, it's the same family of stuff. It's just kind of focusing on different things because we've realized that thiols are so much more pungent um, and a little bit more favorable than the other, the terpene based compounds. Okay, awesome. And I know we're at right about a little over an hour here. I do want to respect your time. If you do, do need to go somewhere, if you want to hang out, we got plenty of questions still to go, but if you got to go, we, we understand too. No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm cruising. Don't, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll just move on to this next question unless there was anything else you wanted to hit. Awesome. No, yeah, let's keep going. Move on. I do have another oxygen question. Yeah, sure. Here, let's. Uh, I've got a few questions that have built up here, so let me let me get through some of these, and then uh, I, I I won't leave you hanging on the oxygen question. Um, in terms of side by sides and temp pressure testing, this was. I think that sorry, might have been is, part of our conversation. Gotcha. Okay. Sorry, okay. That, that was that was a follow up to the magic wand. Gotcha. Uh, so Brent was asking, any thoughts on imperial lager yeast that are good for warm fermenting, pressure fermenting, hoppy lager, cold IPA styles? Uh, yeah, L L13 Global. Um, it's a 3470 strain. Um, I don't know about 70 Fahrenheit, but definitely that strain stays pretty clean for a lager strain uh, up into some some warm ale-ish temperatures. Um, pressure fermenting is a little tricky. I think at the homebrew level, if you're not harvesting and repitching your yeast, uh, L13 global should be should be good. 
Can you all hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, pressure fermenting should be okay. The The problem with pressure fermenting is if you are harvest, does anybody out there, any of y'all harvest and repitch yeast or, or save yeast? Occasionally. I pressure ferment, but I don't reuse it. I don't make enough beer to, it's worth it. Scroll down to the bottom to see. Okay, it looks like Ricky does. Um, okay, so overbuilding. Okay, so really, what I was what I was getting into there is pressure fermentation is. I mean, the principle behind it is you're essentially keeping more CO2 in solution, which is an intentional stressor that you're applying to the yeast, and that added stress uh, keeps it from producing esters, basically. Um, and so you get you get a cleaner fermentation at warmer temperature. However, if you're going to harvest and repitch your yeast from a pressurized fermentation, this is a stressor on your yeast. CO2 or carbon dioxide is acutely toxic to yeast. It is like one of the most toxic things to yeast. If you pressure, if you put yeast in a pure CO2 environment and pressurize it, it's going to, the viability is going to tank super fast. And so if you're harvesting and repitching your yeast, that would be um, just the one thing I would think about with using a, a strain for, for pressurized fermentation. You might, unless you're able to check the viability of your yeast, you might be dealing with a really low health uh, yeast harvest that's coming out of that. Um, but yeah, to, to answer the question, L13 Global, kind of for all those things that you're talking about, I actually have a friend who started a brewery and um, is using L13 as his uh, as his house uh, IPA yeast um, because he's he's figured out how to kind of the temperature range he likes it at and, and is able to get in there. So, um, is this one I've hit my work with O2? Was that in reference to our previous conversation? Yeah, yeah I think so. Like, yeah. It okay. Was. Uh, Ricky, you had a question about DO meter. Yeah, sorry. So there are a couple different. A DO is dissolved oxygen. Um, I should have clarified that. Um, yep, I see it. Okay, someone else got it in here. Uh, in professional brewing, there are kind of like two types that are available. One is the most common one. Common ones are a uh, hatch orbisphere or an Anton Parr C box. And these are for finished product measuring oxygen in, in commercial beer at like the, the parts per billion level. So really, really small amounts of oxygen because, uh, commercial breweries are often very, uh, picky about how much oxygen they'll, they want in their beer at the end. Um, when you're getting oxygen into your work, you're actually measuring at the parts per million level. So like a, we're talking orders of magnitude, uh, greater amounts of oxygen, and those don't work for. And for those, you actually want to probe something that looks a lot like a pH meter, actually, that you kind of just, you you put in there and it'll, it'll tell you how much uh, oxygen is in solution. You see a lot of these models actually for like a water testing. I think you you can, uh, there are a lot of them that are made to test oxygen levels in water, I think for um, ecological research. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it applies, but anyways, those, that would be what you would use to measure your, your wort oxygen. Um, hold on. How much does that cost is for the measuring of the wort? We're talking 10, 20, 50, not hundreds. We're talking hundreds, unfortunately. Oh, so they're, both, they're both about the same then. So the, the one that mar measures in parts per billion is actually going to be in the tens of thousands, probably. Okay. Um, 
these are massive investments. Uh, and those are really commercial brewing only. That's like packaged product when you're running thousands of cans off your line. Um, the the dissolved oxygen one, you know, I, I should say the models that I have looked at are like four to six hundred dollars. I don't know that there's not a cheaper or like more uh, basically like a model that would work for for these applications, because most of these, again, are not designed for brewing. They're designed for things that need to be a little bit more precise. And so maybe there's there's one that out there that is um, a little bit more affordable, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, Let's see. Uh, will, it looks like a question for later. Will Imperial venture down the dry East trail? Uh, yeah, I don't, you know, uh, we're not, we don't have any imminent plans to do that. But again, like we don't have a philosophical um, stance against dry yeast or anything. I think there's some, there needs to, so dry yeast has been, uh, formulated very well. Um, the people who are making dry yeast out there are, uh, they are not playing in the same, uh, business market that we are. These are companies that are much larger, even smaller yeast companies, uh, that have dry yeast are actually, I, as far as I know, getting it done through a third party, which is most of the time these, these larger companies, um, you'll often see that on there. So it's like Lalaman or Fermentis or, you know, even if you, I got, when I was doing it, there was like Mangrove Jacks was like, I don't know if that still exists or. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm pretty sure a lot of these run through the same dryers and then get repackaged and branded. So anyways, um, but it's a, it's a pretty difficult thing, first of all, to, to dry it. It's actually a quite a difficult process and not all yeast strains hold up well to it. Um, but there's also in that process, there's a, a correct way and an incorrect way to rehydrate that yeast. And it's finicky enough that the companies who make dry yeast have basically just formulated it in a way where they say, we're going to put so much yeast in here that it doesn't matter if you just throw it straight into your wort and kill a whole bunch of them. You're still going to have enough living cells where it's going to just go to town and, and figure it out. And to be perfectly honest, that's like a really smart uh <laughs> business strategy just instead of it's educating people is difficult making things that they don't have to think about is uh often a, a better solution so um i've never gotten a straight answer from my own researcher for someone if i talk to someone in a dry use lab an 11 gram sachet compared to the the 200 billion cell pouch from imperial what's the viability comparison on on a a, a sachet of dry yeast is it I don't know if like cell count is a thing to do with dry yeast, but is it two times more, three times more? How much are they passing in there? It depends on, yeah, it's, that's a really good question. It depends. I would say in general, if you uh, retrieve all of the, the yeast cells from one of those 11 gram packets, you're probably going to have as many or a little bit more cells than our 200 billion cells. But okay. those are intentionally designed because they think you're not going to do it the right way and you're going to kill a whole bunch of them. Um, and they still want to, to make it. Okay. Um, we, I've done some testing. It depends on, it varies from supplier to supplier, um, in terms of cell concentration, uh, in those things. Um, it also is in my testing using very similar methods with just like small tweaks. 
I would mm -hmm. go from getting like 95% viability of a rehydrated dry yeast packet to 65%. Um, and these are really big swings uh, with not very big changes in variables. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but that's kind of. Yeah, I've never been able to, to really piece together. Is it, am I getting 100 billion cells if I pitch it? Am I getting 200 billion? But if it's if it's designed for a direct pitch and to kill however mm -hmm. many cells but still be viable, I, I get why they don't want to give a straight answer on that. That that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so there, it's kind of getting into this dry yeast thing. I mean, there are, there are a lot of upsides to dry yeast. One is just that, I mean, it's, they last forever. It's great. Um, you know, it, it really, it, it, the convenience is is hard to ignore. The downside is there are a lot fewer strains that are available um, in dry. Um, I think there's there's a legitimate debate about uh, flavor differences between dry and and liquid yeast. I don't particularly have I haven't heard anything or seen anything convincing in either direction. To be perfectly honest, um, I think it a lot of it just has to do with if you are taking care of your yeast in general versus not taking care of your yeast in general. Um, but one of the most difficult things about dry yeast is that for commercial brewers or for home brewers who are harvesting and repitching, um, getting a consistency in terms of when you put that dry yeast in the first time, one, you don't really know how many yeast cells are actually surviving into fermentation. So you don't really have an idea of what your pitch rate is in terms of cells per milliliter per degree Play-Doh or cells per milliliter. Um, so if you harvest your yeast and then go say you can even quantify your yeast in some way, whether you're cell counting, whether you're measuring by volume, whether you're measuring by weight, how do you replicate that same pitch rate in the second one? If you don't know what you had in the first one, it's just this kind of like, it's less of an issue in my experience at the homebrew level, but for commercial brewers where they need to make the same beer every time, um, that's where one of the big hitches comes for, for dry yeast. And the answer to that is, well, just pitch a new packet every time. And I think there is, um, the people who run these companies that are this large and this successful are not dumb. And I, I think they're, they've maybe thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So why won't we, Ricky, you had a question. Why won't we see it? Uh, is there an issue on that uh, that Saison strain, the uh, B35? Uh, it? No, yeah. So no, there's no issue with QA or or anything like that. It's just we we don't uh, pouch into homebrew packets. Every strain that we make, um, we have a strain bank of about like 85, I think, strains that are available normally. But we only put into homebrew pouches. I think about 30 of those or something like that. Um, there's just, I mean, to be perfectly honest, not everyone loves Saison as much as I do. And so people, people won't buy it. So. Um, um, I think something that would be kind of interesting to hear from your perspective is going from that, that East Bank that you have up to a commercial pitch or packaging for homebrew pouches. What does that whole process look like? I don't think there's a oh, yeah, totally. So it really, you know, a, a large portion of the process of us making yeast looks a lot like a commercial brewery does. We have cylindroconical fermenters. Um, our brew house is is basically just a pressure cooker. Like I was talking about, we, you know, we don't just bring it to a boil. We bring it to like 244 degrees Fahrenheit um, under pressure to really sterilize it because that's 
something we you know, we just have to be very certain about. Um, but yeah, so basically we have an 80 degree, a negative 80 degree Celsius freezer that we keep all of our yeast strains in. And this is the 80 strains we have available, plus a ton of private banking and um, a lot of uh, more offshoot projects, I guess I should say. Um, and then what we do is we'll basically, we'll take those out um, under a, a laminar flow hood. We, we will take a small sample um, and basically put that onto a plate, uh, like a, a cultured plate. Um, and we'll grow it and, and start there to make sure that we have morphology growing that we're familiar with, that there is a single uniform morphology among them so we don't have any contamination. And then we'll find uh, a couple of those and we'll take those and basically it's a, a group of cells that you just swipe off there and we'll put it into a, a test tube with media. Start there, grow it up for a certain amount of time. Um, we're not counting, we've dialed in our process enough where we're not like counting the cells, but basically the idea is you're you're looking for a peak cell concentration. And typically that's, I don't know, it depends on the strain, but you can say hundred million cells per milliliter, which mm -hmm. is, you know, a lot um, grows up. And then once we have that, we'll take that and we'll move it into generally you're stepping up about 10 to 15 times in terms of growth. Um, so if you had it in 10 milliliters, your next step would be in hundred to 150 milliliters or something like that. Um, these first early steps are typically done fairly warm for what you would think about uh, fermentations being done at. We're typically running them close to 30 C, uh, so 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and that's because yeast is happy at these temperatures. It doesn't always produce flavors that we like, but that's where yeast is happy. It wants to grow there, um, or I should say ale yeast. So anyways, we'll do that. And then once we get to about a two liter flask size, that's where we switch away from our lab and we move into our production facility where it's it's these cylinder conical tanks and it's kind of the same process. It's two liters and we'll we'll fill maybe say 30 liters of, of media in there and, and dump that in and um, get that plenty of oxygen. That's the big thing we're doing throughout our process that breweries aren't is we are constantly adding oxygen in some, we add sterile air, we don't add pure oxygen because uh, too much oxygen is actually toxic to yeast as well. Um, yeast is sensitive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're adding oxygen periodically throughout this process just to stimulate growing and then um, it grows up and uh, it keeps it nice and happy, making a lot of cells and able to to build up what it needs. And then basically the final step is we let the last inoculum size. We have up to 30 barrel tanks. Um, so sometimes we're, we're doing that and we're pulling a, a ton of yeast out of there, but basically it runs to terminal gravity because this last step is actually when sugar resources are depleted in a fermentation or a propagation that stimulates the yeast to build up its internal energy stores, its glycogen, its trellos, which is really important for um, the, the yeast could be viable, but to make sure it's vital and like really healthy and ready to go, it needs to have these internal energy stores. And so that's a, a really important part of our process too. So. so from pulling it out of the freezer to being able to package it to ship out, how long does that take? Typically, I mean, if, if we were really, um, really pushing it, we could do two weeks. Um, typically, we say, you know, three weeks for, for a commercial pitch, just because our, our production schedule is, is pretty, <laughs> uh, <laughs> say our production, our production manager really likes spreadsheets. Um, it is a, it's a lot to juggle. So. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, let's see, just getting through here. 
Okay, so Ricky, I, I think I, so someone chime in if I miss any questions in here, but it looks like I don't think I missed any until I get, uh, the last one I see is Ricky asking about um, genetic drift. Um, if I missed any before that, let me know. Um, so this is this is such a good question, Ricky, and I'm I'm really glad you asked. Um, I think the short answer is you don't. Uh, we don't prevent genetic drift. So this is kind of the uh, the conversation that nobody has in in the brewing industry or in the in the yeast propagation industry. There is no such thing as preventing genetic drift. So um, Everybody who is brewing, whether it's at a homebrew scale or in a commercial brewery or anybody who is making yeast, is um, either intentionally or unintentionally applying selective pressures to a population of organisms. And, you know, you think about, you pitch your yeast in there, that's like one generation of yeast. In a normal fermentation, you're getting roughly like three, maybe four replication events. So you start with two cells, four, eight, 16. Um, these are what are actual generations for yeast. These are like, I mean, if you, again, think about people and like our, you know, family trees and stuff in a single fermentation, you're essentially getting four generations or three or four generations of yeast. And so the more times that the yeast does this, the greater chance there is that there's going to be some change in that uh, genetic makeup. When we're doing this, we're not running it through one fermentation, we're running it through hundreds of these generations. And so what's really big for us is that what's coming out of our system matches performance-wise what we have in our negative our, our 80 freezer. We wanna make sure that genetic drift isn't unidirectional. We could be, it can, it can move back and forth. So say like, I, I'm not saying this is what happening, but say, in our lab, fermenting at a warmer temperature is starting to apply pressure in like one direction and the yeast is starting to genetically move as a population in this direction. But then it goes back into our, our more production-like facility and it kind of veers back in this direction. And then like by the end, it's back here in the middle and it has the same characteristics as the strain that we put in there. There might be some changes in there, but eventually it's, it's kind of balancing itself out. Um, this, however, I think speaks to why some people are just like, hey, you know, I really like White Labs Chico strain, and I like it more than Imperial's Chico strain, our flagship. Um, I'm never going to tell anybody there's no difference because I fundamentally believe that one yeast lab growing it one way versus another yeast lab growing it another way is absolutely going to be a difference. And if you think there's a difference there, okay, cool. Like, I feel pretty confident they're pretty darn similar, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know enough to tell you that they absolutely are. Um, so anyways, that's it, the, the genetic drift is a is a, a bit of a complicated discussion. I think it's, per, personally, I think it's something that people focus too much on. Um, getting a unidirectional uh, genetic shift is less common than stressing your yeast out uh, in a way that just uh, affects their health poorly enough, where it starts to feel like the yeast is changing, uh, more likely what's happening is you just have yeast in a different health state, uh, actually changing the genetic, the average genetic makeup of your yeast is a pretty hard thing to do. Wow. Yeah, I know that's something that 
I myself with harvesting yeast have been concerned about just, gosh, if I push it back past five or six generations, is it going to change? Is it not going to do what I want? You know, not act, but, but health. Yeah. Maybe that's probably more of a, a concern on our end instead of an actual genetic change on that, on that scale. It's probably not more, it's probably more towards that, the health side of the yeast. I'd, I'd think. Yeah. If, I mean, if any of y'all are really curious about this, uh, there's a, a researcher up at the University of Washington, Maitreya Dunham, um, who put out a paper a couple of years ago that was tracking uh, the genetic makeup of, of yeast through its harvest and repitching cycles in a brewery. Um, and it's definitely like preliminary and, and she's very clear about like not making any, any massive conclusions, but it does show that like, 10 fermentation cycles is kind of where you start to see a, a real possibility for some changes to happen. But the way I always talk to people about this is like, I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. That's good research in the end. Um, yeah. So this is, yeah. Hang on. Uh, in the, sorry. I got distracted <laughs> by a question that just came through. Uh, shoot. I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> 10, uh, 10 fermentation yeah, so 10, 10 fermentation cycles is where you you might start to see it uh, something happen or the potential for something to happen. But again, I still think the probability that your yeast health is changing in a way that's affecting your fermentation is more likely than genetic drift being the, the or genetic change being the cause for a, a change in, in characteristic uh, of the yeast. Um, and that's really where you just the, like that's the starting point where you see the potential. And I always tell brewers to when you're thinking about this, I, I feel like if if I see someone getting too hung up on this, if your beer tastes good, then it doesn't matter. Like I, I work with a lot of commercial brewers, like oh we don't go past generation six because we don't we don't want anything bad to happen. And my question is always like, well what is what is that beer fermented with that six six generation? of yeast tastes like does it taste good well then if it tastes good why the heck aren't you reusing it like there's no magic reason to stop it's like it's there's a this is kind of one of those brewers dogma things but if like if you see your you don't like the character of your beer after fermentation after you know your fourth harvest and repitch then yeah stop doing it and don't do it that much you know make sure your practices are good but i i would hesitate to assign genetic drift as the, the cause of a lot of these changes, um, unless people are taking it way further out, um, which kind of leads into that question that distracted me from Will. Uh, so the verdant strain came about from London three as genetic drift. And so this is this is kind of the the really fascinating part of this conversation, realizing there are a lot of fascinating things to me in this. But um, anyways, the all these strains, so let's let's take these uh, London Ale 3 strains. So for us, that's A38 juice. The parent strain of that is, is uh, or the source beer for that is Boddington's. Now, it's not like, you know, Imperial is only, I think we're like nine years old or eight years old or something like this. It's not like we're the only, it's not like we went over to and got a can of Boddington's and swiped all the yeast out of there. It's like years ago. In probably I think the 60s or 70s, when a lot of these strains started coming over in uh, these newer strains that people use, um, and that first kind of round of, of craft breweries or microbreweries in the 80s really started um, perpetuating the use of a lot of these strains. They were really a, a 
a reason that a lot of these strains started getting passed around. And so when you think about genetic drift, it wasn't just a single brewery growing, but it was like one brewery had like in the so they in the 60s went and got this Boddington's yeast strain, brought it back over. Um, they were using it at their brewery and then they needed had some friends around who were also brewing and needed yeast. And so they passed around and you kind of this map starts like jumping all over. And at every one of these locations, this strain that is the same is getting slightly different selective pressures applied to it. You know, one might be being brewed on a five barrel system. Another one might be 200 barrels in horizontal tanks or something like that. It's going to completely change the way the yeast behaves. And so over time, you could say, oh, you have a London Ale 3 strain. I have a London Ale 3 strain. Why do they behave so different? It's like, well, I've been brewing mine in Vermont in these tanks that are these weird old converted dairy tanks for 20 years, you've been on the West Coast growing these. Anyways, the way that genetic drift can create a new strain uh, is pretty fascinating. And that often is like, there's no threshold for calling a strain something different. It's kind of just if, a, to be perfectly honest, if someone, a brewer or a yeast manufacturer decides, hey, this is behaving differently enough from another strain, we can just call it its own thing. Um, that's what happens there. And so I know London Ale 3 strains in particular are very difficult to um, dry. And so from my understanding too, the Verdant strain came about because it was a lot of searching for a London Ale 3 strain that could survive the drying process. And this was one that they found that did. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Um, Ricky has another question. Yeah, so breweries aren't suffering from CO2 toxicity and their reused yeast aren't all yeasts kind of under pressure at that scale. Uh, yes and no. So uh, I think you're probably referring to like hydrostatic pressure here in the tank. Um, so 10 meters of vertical height is going to equal one atmosphere or 14.7 PSI of pressure on the very bottom part of that tank. 10 meters is is really high. It's 33 feet high. There aren't that like most craft breweries and microbreweries are not brewing and fermenters that are going to apply that much pressure. They're normally are going to only be about half that height at the very highest. And so you're thinking about like seven PSI at the very bottom of the tank, which more pressure means more gas trapped in solution is essentially the way I'm thinking about this here. Um, and uh, so that that is like the hydrostatic pressure. There are breweries that add like spooning valves or intentionally do pressurized fermentations and for yeast that has run through pressurized fermentations, it does suffer. And that's a big thing that we actually really work with breweries on is um, they might be able to harvest once or twice. And a lot of that is going to involve harvesting immediately once terminal gravity is reached to get it out of that situation where there's a bunch of CO2 in solution. Um, but what will often happen in those situations is they get it, you know, it's healthy enough. It's, it's showing good viability. And which is basically just a test of alive or dead, which is a pretty black and white way to look at health. I mean, if you think about human beings, we're more than alive or dead. We're in varying degrees of health. Ceased is the same. Um, so they might have good viability coming out of these spooned or pressurized fermentations for like one generation or two, but then they might start to see problems show up. They might see like lagging fermentation times. They can often, this will manifest itself in terms of like a, a change in uh, clarity or haze stability in a beer. Um, that's a really sensitive one that yeast seems to kind of say, hey, I'm, I'm, something's going on. I'm not happy. If you start to see changes in like how it's clarity, it, how your, your beer's final clarity is, um, yeast seems to, that's like a, I don't know, 
we're still unclear about exactly how that works. But um, anyways, yeah, it, it is the CO2 toxicity in uh, in commercial breweries is definitely something that, um, depending on the scale that you're brewing at, is a real concern that people need to think about. Sorry, sorry, you give me going on some of this and I'll, uh, I'll go for a while. <laughs> no, it's awesome. We, I, I know most of us here, probably all of us appreciate the knowledge and that, that in-depth. It's not, it's not often we can find someone out in the wild that can uh, speak the same language as us and you know, nerd out about the, the microorganisms that most people just, they just want to drink the beer. They don't care. <laughs> right, right. Totally. Uh, looks like Craig had a question. Can yeast be proprietary such as Capri or is everything open for use by another company? Um, this kind of goes back to the question or kind of what I was talking about a little bit with like the food law for labeling genetically engineered uh, food or, or whatever and how it's just kind of unclear. Um, this is an area of... Uh, I guess it would be uh, trademark law that hasn't really been tested. Uh, for the most part, uh, no. I mean, yes, yeast is open to to be used by by everybody. Um, this is kind of like um, this is often why ye we feel fairly confident that we know a yeast strain from somebody else is similar to us because um, we often have an idea of how that yeast got to them. Um, this is with the new genetically engineered strains. Um, and this is kind of a subject that's becoming a more real consideration, I think, in, in our industry. I don't think it's ever going to be to the point that it is with, say, like Monsanto and stuff, where they're talking about seeds being spread into neighboring fields, suing that farmer for having so a, a trademark seed or something like that. I'm I'm not an expert in that area, so don't don't quote me. But from my understanding, there's some issues with that. This is not going to be the type of thing where um, that type of testing for us is not easy enough right now, where no one's going to be able to do that. And it's also I don't think there's a cutthroat enough attitude in the brewing industry and in the fermentation industry in general to I think for the most part, people would respect if someone had a real viable reason for keeping something proprietary or saying that something was proprietary. Um, I think Philly Sour, actually, are you, are, you, are you all familiar with Philly Sour? I think this is kind of a, a good example. Yeah, so this organism is uh, Lachancia thermotolerans. Um, and it's kind of one where, like, we have Lachancia thermotolerans in our lab. We don't sell it because it's kind of like, it, yeah, but that's their thing. It's like it's it's not ours, and it's I, I we have lots of organisms. You can't really trademark an organism, kids. How do you say it's this exact same as someone else's? But there is with some of the genetic tweaks that are being made. There's an argument that some people are having, saying, "Well, that constitutes a novel enough and unique enough thing that there there might need to be." Um, I don't know. There might be some test cases in the not so distant future for this, which I think would be a bummer. <laughs> yeah. But interesting. Well, it looks like I think that's all we have, at least for questions now. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I know it's later for you. I it, I think you're one time zone ahead of me here. So, um, 
I got a quick question for her. Back my oxygen. Yeah, yeah, uh, go for it. Yes. <laughs> so we know that zero oxygen is bad, and we know way too much oxygen to be issues. Getting back to equilibrium, are you somewhat okay with the splash method? Splash method, or are you leaning way more towards uh, oxygenating one or that type of thing? Can we get away with just splashing? Uh, yeah, you, you definitely can get away with just splashing. I think that what's difficult is if you're just splashing. I don't have numbers from this, so I, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't speculate, but I my gut tells me that if you're say splashing into a carboy or something like that from the top for the entire time, um, you're still not going to be at at full ambient saturation. You're still not going to be at that eight to nine parts per million. I would bet you're you're going to be a little bit under there. Um, you'll still get some oxygen in solution, but I would say in general. Um, especially in the situation that you're talking about where you're kind of having to knock out warm, I think you were saying. Yeah. Or I, so I slowly cool. And then right before I'm ready to pitch, I'll either splash it or maybe you think about it. I already have a pump. So I'm thinking about recirculating with a, a splasher thing in there and just recirculate mm -hmm. for a while and see what I can do. Yeah, I think that could be a cool method. I think the biggest thing to think about there is um, the the period of time that it sits without any organism pitched into it uh, is a, a window for other things to take hold. Um, right. And that's just the main thing to be aware of there. Um, that method that you're talking about is waiting till it cools down, then running through a pump and kind of like plashing, splashing in some part of that loop. I think yeah. that could be a, a, a great method. Um, I do think the, you know, the having access to pure O2 in a stone is really handy. Um, I know you said you don't make any IPAs, um, <laughs> but even for like, you know, there are certain Belgian strains where if you give a, um, a fermentation more oxygen in general, uh, you're going to keep ester production a little bit lower. Um, and so let's say you wanted to brew with like a, a wit strain, but you really wanted to make sure that it didn't get too banana-y. Um, having pure oxygen on hand and being able to kind of like hit higher oxygen levels would be a, a way to potentially control that as well. So with darker beers like browns, porters, reds, those would need less oxygen or are less sensitive than IPAs? Is that what you're saying? Uh, the only IPA reference I was making was for A38 juice. Those London AL3 strains um, are typically have higher oxygen needs than most strains. Um no, for for in general, like I think if you're hitting that like eight, nine, ten parts per million, you'll be fine for most of those beers you're talking about, plus like an American ale. But it really does come down to, um, you know, if you have good, healthy yeast, um, you you, it gives you a a a bit of a safety net there. Right. Okay. Yeah. I was actually just going to mention Will's question here: staggering O2 pitches. I. I do a bunch of big beers. I love Imperial Stouts, and I know people have staggered oxygen additions. I mean, what do you, is that necessary? I think it's incredibly helpful. I think, really? um, yeah, I, I do. I think, so uh, we typically, depending on, on the starting gravity of the beer, so we recommend uh, 
0.75 million cells per milliliter per degree Play-Doh for standard gravity ales. This is for those of you who aren't familiar with this um, kind of unit per unit uh, way of measuring things. It's just a instead of doing cells per milliliter, it takes into account the starting gravity of your beer as well. Um, so it kind of adjusts along with that. But once we get above 17 Play-Doh or like 1068, 1070 uh, starting gravity, we start to recommend a higher pitch rate as well. So a million cells per mil per degree Play-Doh. And then once you start to get really high, like if you're getting into like 25, 26, 27 Play-Doh starting, which is not unheard of at all um, these days, we start to talk about 1.5 to 2 million cells per mil per degree Play-Doh, which if you're doing the math in your head, the Play-Dohs are going up and also the, the rate at which we're recommending pitching this is going up. And so that means a heck of a lot of cells. So kind of the two things that we found, and this is not just us, this is, um, I have friends who work for a, a number of, I would say, well-respected uh, breweries that make these style of beer fairly well. Um, all of them are just like, we give it a ton of yeast and we give it a ton of oxygen. It's kind of the two things, because you're putting it into a high stress environment, the osmotic pressure is really intense on the yeast and you're probably just gonna get a lot of cells that just don't make it. So you wanna start with that high pitch rate and then a ton of oxygen at knockout. And then typically we say anywhere from 10 to 18 hours after knockout for a commercial fermentation, hit it with a second dose of oxygen um, to get the cells more of what they need again to maintain their cell walls. Basically the better they can maintain their cell walls, they can deal with that osmotic stress. They can deal with the extra alcohol that's being produced. As that alcohol content goes up, that cell membrane starts to weaken and starts to become more permeable, which just means they can't control what's going in and out as well. Um, and so staggered O2 additions for high starting gravity beers is a great way to make sure that your yeast stays healthy for as long as possible, doesn't produce those high alcohols, actually finishes your beer. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan. I'm gonna have to give that a shot next time I got an imperial stout on the schedule coming up here so I'll have to I haven't tried it before I didn't know if it was necessary or not but I'll, uh, I'll have to give that a shot yeah I mean it really is it's a those are just difficult fermentations in general you're asking the yeast to do a lot and so it's kind of like um you you have two things you can play with one is the the pitch rate and one is the oxygen level and you might as well just give it everything you can yeah absolutely well, awesome. I appreciate your time and your expertise, totally. your knowledge. This was awesome. It's always fun to just get in the weeds about these topics that, that normal people don't care about. And, um, but it, it goes into everything, you know, people that enjoy the beer, this, you know, the, you're the reason behind that, you know, behind the consistency of the product and, and why they enjoy what they do is they don't understand the work that needs to go into that. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not easy just I think like anything in the world it's not easy and and uh it's great to hear that from somebody else that that you appreciate as much as we do yeah well thank you for having me I appreciate you saying that this is you know we we do care about this and so um yeah it's nice to know that other people do too but um yes you know, not and more than just drinking the beer and enjoying the beer that's made with imperial yeast we like the, to know the background and, and the totally <laughs> yeah well, awesome. I, that is all I have, unless you have anything else, Alex. I, I think we're about good to wrap it up. 
Yeah, that's all I have. I'll let you guys, I don't know if you have like uh, club stuff to take care of, but I'll, I'll get out of here. I'll say thank you and I'll, I'll let you guys finish up if you have anything, but.